Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explorer, the magazine of Connecticut history, and sponsored by attorney Peter Bowman. Find out more at bowman.legal and by CT Humanities, co-publisher of Connecticut Explored. I'm Walt Woodward. For all the years, Joel Kupperman was a soft-spoken, distinguished philosophy professor at the University of Connecticut. He carried a secret he discussed with no one, not even his family. That secret? That he'd once been the most popular child celebrity in America, a figure so memorable he appears in works by J.D. Solinger, Philip Roth, the poet William Friedman, and Nora Ephron. Now, as he slips into dementia, his son, the award-winning graphic novelist Michael Kupperman, has created a graphic memoir about his father's hidden past. All the Answers uncovers Joel Kupperman's life as America's greatest child radio and TV star, and the cost that being a quiz kid inflicted not just on Joel, but his whole family. It's one of our best podcasts ever, and at the end, we'll tell you how to enter to win a free copy of the book. Today, I'm at Mansfield Public Library with comic artist, illustrator, and writer Michael Kupperman, who lives in New York City but grew up just a few miles down the road from here. Michael is the author of three books of comics, Snake and Bacon's Cartoon Cabaret and Tales Designed to Thrizzle, Volumes 1 and 2. He also wrote and illustrated the humorous book Mark Twain's Autobiography, 1910 to 2010. Some of his work has been translated into animation, and he sometimes performs, occasionally dressed as Mark Twain. I've got to come see that. You, you kind of look like Mark Twain, by the way. His work has appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times, LA Weekly, The Wall Street Journal, Fortune, and many others. But today we're here to talk about Michael's newest work, one that is in many ways much more personal, perhaps, than any work you've previously done, right? Oh, absolutely, yes. The Simon & Schuster published graphic memoir, All the Answers. Michael, it's great to have you on Grading the Nutmeg. Thank you. It's great to be here. In All the Answers, you tell a deeply moving and, frankly, an amazing story about your father, Joel Kupperman, who I knew for many years as a genial, gentle, and distinguished professor of philosophy at the University of Connecticut. But your book shows that he was so much more than that, a man who once had a completely different life, right? One that he would never talk about. Yes, absolutely. When he'd been a child performer, essentially, on this show, The Quiz Kids, and was America's most famous child prodigy. So tell us about The Quiz Kids. What was it? It was a show that started in 1940 and went to, I think, 1953. And it was uh, five children would answer questions uh, some submitted by the audience. And uh, there were no prizes, but uh, every child got a war bond uh, or savings bond worth essentially $75 every episode. And the winners would come back the next week. So how did your father come to be on this show? Uh, my grandmother took him to audition when he was five. And he got on, uh, was on a show, didn't score well enough to come back, but they really wanted him to, so they... Uh, told my grandmother how to coach him, and he came back a little while later and then stayed on for essentially the next 10 years. We're on the air with a school kids questionnaire brought to you by the makers of Alka-Seltzer and one-a-day brand vitamin tablets. 
And here they are, the Quiz Kids, with Jack Benny as our special guest. Thank you, Fort Pearson, and good evening, everyone. Fort forgot to mention one rule. Of the five Quiz Kids, the three with high scores come back again. Now, we get on with roll call. Harvey? I'm Harvey Bennett Fishman. I'm 12 years old and in the eighth grade at the Bradwell School. Ruthie? I'm Lysandra Duskin. I'm eight years old and I'm in sixth grade at the Parkside School. And Joel? I am Joel Copperman. I am six years old and two way at both the schools. Say, wait a minute, Joel. I thought you were going to be on Jack Benny's program right now. What, what happened? Uh, well, you see, the government needed some of the time on Jack Benny's program, and uh, uh, both the government and me wouldn't have, there wouldn't be time enough for both the government and me, and the government was more important than me, so I got off. Oh, well, good for you. Well, now that's, that's a splendid way to look at it, Joel, and I, I really admire you. you. You really are a true little American gentleman. So the idea behind this show is that these were all child protégés, right? Really smart kids who could, yes. um, who could outshine adults in, in intellectual competition. So your dad was showing signs of being extremely intelligent even then. He could do uh, math rapidly in his head. Uh, you know, and his his uh, use of math was very impressive. He could do complicated problems very quickly. Now then, here's a math question from Frank Clark of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Assume that the world is 25,000 miles in circumference. If you walked around the world at the equator, you wouldn't lose your head, but it would go faster than your feet. Approximately... How much farther would the top of your head travel than the soles of your feet? You are five and one-half feet tall. Joel, five and a half feet tall. Uh, well, five and a half times two equals eleven times three. E and the seventh equals thirty-four and four-sevenths. Thirty-four and four-sevenths is right. Good for you. And your grandmother saw this, knew about the show, and really moved to get him involved with it. She was, as she comes through in the book, very much as the classic ar archetypical stage mother, right? Yes, and they say so even when you read uh, texts from the 1940s talking about it, and people are much more polite about things. Everyone refers to her as a stage mother. You know, one of the, one of the questions you have to ask is, if your father was on this program and... He never wanted to talk about it while you were growing up. How did you find out about it? Well, we knew about it, and there were still uh, reminders all over the place when I was growing up. Uh, in the book I show, uh, Rocky and Bullwinkle mentioned him, which was a huge surprise to me at the time. And people would sometimes ask, are you related to? Um, it faded, and by the 80s, no one was asking so much, but we were aware of it. Um, it was just understood that to bring it up would cause him pain. So that it was just, it was a taboo subject, you know? Absolutely, yes. I, I think 
maybe every family, certainly a lot of families have, you know, some things we just don't talk about. But it's odd to think of a talk show experience as being one of those things. Yes. And I, I can remember, uh, just to spill something, during family arguments, if they got really heated, I think sometimes, you know, the words baby Einstein might be thrown around or something like and that. And baby Einstein was one of the terms that they used to describe, to describe your father yeah. on the show. Yeah. yeah. I get the sense in the book that compared to the other kids on this show, he was really, he was first among equals. He was pretty outstanding. Well, most of what the kids were doing was just memorization, let's face it. They they read the newspaper, they read Time magazine, and they could regurgitate those facts on air. He could actually calculate, which is impressive. Although I think um, Richard Williams, uh, who was also on the show in the in the war period was as good as math as he, or at least very close. He just was older and, you know, a Gentile, which may have led into it. You mentioned that Richard was a Gentile, but he was the only Gentile on the program, right? Well, no, there were, there were other Gentiles appearing. He was the only, he was the only Gentile among the star core group that there went touring, which was uh, five kids at first, and then when Jared Darrow was removed, it was four, and of those, three were Jewish and one was Gentile. So you, in the book, you, you explain and talk about how your father's Jewishness was, you think, you conclude in many ways, central to his uh, success on the program. He certainly seemed to think so during the period when he was willing to talk about this, and that seemed to be the one thing he really wanted to convey, that he felt like he'd been manufactured, and it had been because the producers, who were liberal types, I think he described them as, wanted a Jewish kid for the show. Now, why was having a Jewish kid on the show so important at this time? Um, because we were uh, in the war, and uh, it... it may have been propaganda. It quite likely was a form of propaganda. The, prop the producer was a propagandist, a very smart man named Louis G. Cowan. Yeah, then, you say that Louis G. Cowan was the smartest man in the book, which having known your father, that is, that's an impressive statement. Tell us about him. He's quite the person. He is a fascinating character, and it's, uh, it's kind of appalling. He doesn't even have a Wikipedia page, uh, let alone a biography. He was a former ad man who went into radio. Um, he'd had a couple of successes, but then Quiz Kids was really huge for him. Um, he continued working in radio during the 1940s and then went into TV. He worked with Edward R. Murrow. Um, he then invented essentially the modern game show in many ways with a $64,000 challenge. Uh, on the back of that, he became the president of CBS TV. He, he spearheaded a lot of, uh, you know, today's TV. He, he pushed for hour-long dramas, intelligent TV. He developed shows like Captain Kangaroo and The Twilight Zone. And then when the quiz show scandal happened, that was it for him. So he was he was he was deeply involved in the quiz show scandal. Well, he was one of the people who <clears throat> took the fall for it, and he was very bitter at the time and, and insisted he had not known. But um, some of the shows, you know, sixty four thousand dollar challenge, as it turned out, and uh, and question were both rigged, um, and a lot of the other shows that were being broadcast or that he'd helped develop. He, he said the, uh, the corruption had started after he left, but uh, basically the network selected him to take a fall for it. Sure. Was Quiz Kids rigged? No, uh, but it had always been 
asked if it was all through the series. So I think to have this happen, um, news articles at the time of the quiz show scandal lead with people saying, was Joel Kupperman, you know, prepped? Was he faking? Um, it did come up again. Um, I don't think it was rigged. I do think they kind of set things up, you know, as much as possible to, uh, to showcase, you know, especially my father's abilities. He clearly is a standout in a standout show. I, I think people who don't know about the quiz, quiz kids from World War II would really be amazed at what a cultural icon this program became. Michael Ritchie, who is a historian of this era, he wrote that, this is a quote from him, the biggest kid star in both radio and TV was Joel Kupperman, who was 10 and had an IQ over 200. So clearly, um, your father was a child phenomenon. He's mentioned in works by J.D. Solinger, Philip Roth, Nora Ephron, the poet William Friedman, and Woody Allen even featured a Joel Kupperman-like character in Radio Days. It's amazing to me that here is this person who was, in a way, larger than life, and then he just walked away from all of it. Yes. It, it was fascinating to me to realize just how hot his fame was during the war years and uh, how excited everyone was about him, you know, and uh, everyone wanted to meet him, and he, you know... Sure, he was, on, he was on everybody's A-list, right? Yeah, Presidents, sports figures, movie stars. You even you devote a chapter to Henry Ford, who Henry Ford, the, the industrialist, went out of his way to meet Joel Kupperman. Yes, it's a, it's a very bizarre thing where the quiz kids were visiting the, uh, I think it's the B-24 factory in Dearborn. Willow Run, yeah. And uh, were invited to meet Ford, and he didn't go because he supposedly had a cold, but in, in fact... Joel didn't go to meet Henry right. Ford. Stayed right? back at the hotel because he supposedly had a cold, although it was, in fact, because his uh, mother was trying to shield him from Ford. But Ford was very put out that he didn't show up and went to the hotel the next day. Now, why was Joel's mother trying to shield him from Henry Ford? Oh, Ford was a very notorious anti-Semite and had uh, directed a campaign of hatred against Jewish people that still resonates today. I mean, his works are still being distributed. So it seems strange that this noted anti-Semite is anxious to meet the quiz kids because they are connected with the Jewish cause in World War II. What was that about? I, I think he was trying for good public relations, possibly. Um, the only other explanation I can think of is that when he demanded to meet my father that he really wanted to see for himself this Jewish kid that everyone said was so smart and try to judge for himself what kind of person he was. Or So you think he may have been skeptical or something? I think that might be it, yes. And Joel didn't go, uh, and you say that's probably because his mother was trying to shield him from someone like Henry Ford. Well, this book, you know, this book is... Uh it's called All the Answers, but as everyone's been pointing out, it opens a lot of questions. And some of them are already being answered. So I actually have heard from um, the other side of the family, who I've shown the book to, that they, they know that uh, he was deliberately kept back because, you know, she wanted to protect him. So he stays away. Joel doesn't show up to meet Henry Ford, but Henry Ford decides he's going to meet Joel. What yeah, happens? Absolutely. 
Well, he shows up at the hotel the next day, comes up to the hotel room, and then, you know, they had a meeting. It's, it's unfortunate. It's really unfortunate that my grandmother, uh, his mother, she kept every photograph and clipping that was uh, artifact of his fame, but she didn't write anything down. So she never kept any records of, uh, of any of the meetings he had with people or any of the other encounters, and it, it, it is frustrating. He so interesting. You never really have her opinions about what went on, but she was a careful, careful chronicler of the events of his life. Yeah, she was a neutral archivist, but she never, you know, she didn't, as far as I know, keep a diary. There's no journal. Uh, she didn't record any of these things herself. She didn't take pictures herself, which, of course, was much more difficult back then. Um, so, yeah, there's no record of a lot of it. And it, it's so frustrating. He met so many famous people back then, and uh, so many interesting characters appeared on the Quiz Kids. And as someone who loves old movies and TV, it's... Uh, just uh, tell us some of the people who he met. I was just amazed. that It's like watching the, uh, the Academy Awards of the 40s walk through his living room. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. I mean, the ones there are records of, there's Avin Costello, Bing Crosby, Bob Hope, uh, Chico Marx. Um, Marlene Dietrich? Marlene Dietrich, Orson Welles. Uh, and then there are the ones there's no record of, uh, Jimmy Stewart, you know, odder figures like John Carradine or uh, Susan Cabot. Um, a lot of baseball players. A lot too, of right? baseball players. He and Harv were actually... Uh, the ball boys for an Esquire magazine all-star baseball game in 1946 where they um, had uh, the managers were Ty Cobb and Babe Ruth. Your father even starred in a movie, right, with Donald O'Connor? Yes, Chip Off the Old Block. And tell us about that. Um, it's interesting because in the scrapbooks you can see the mutation that they just wanted him to come and be in a movie and they developed this idea. And uh, I don't think it, it worked out the way they wanted because uh, things changed so much. But, uh, yeah, he came to Hollywood to do a movie, and it metamorphosed into Chip Off the Old Block starring Donald O'Connor. And my father plays himself in essentially, I think, a 10-minute scene where he wants to join the Navy and, and, and help the war effort. The feeling I get from your account of this is that he was still a kid and this was an uncomfortable situation for him. Yeah, and he's doing... He, uh, you see this in photographs of him, too. He was awkward with his body, and you can see him doing awkward things in the movie. You can see his hands starting to move in a strange direction, and you see that in photos sometimes, too, where the quiz kids are all waving, but my father's hands are twisted and he's looking at them in puzzlement. You know, it's like a lot of us, if you turn on a camera and say, okay, be natural, right? Yes, what course. do you do? You start thinking about what you do. In your book, it becomes very clear that while at times your dad enjoyed the celebrity, he, you know, he would really, he'd go along and have fun. Over time, being a quiz kid became for him anything but fun, right? And he paid a real a terrible price, ultimately, for being a quiz kid. Yes, I, th I think for him it became most of the time an onerous job, and it was a job, and he felt like he was obligated to do it. And yes, I, I, I feel this about child performers, uh, is that you're making withdrawal on the future when you push your child into show business or to perform at a young age. And I do think he made a withdrawal on the future, and it came due at about the same time I started doing this book. Well, the, the real question is, did he make that withdrawal, or was he just the currency that somebody else was investing? 
Yeah, that's a tough one to answer. I, I think it has to be the the latter. I think he was uh, he was pushed into it and was simply so dutiful and uh, impressed by the arguments for it that he, you know, he simply went along. And I think that that made him, in some ways, a very passive person. Was it his mother who pushed him, or? Oh yes, it was his mother. She she had. Uh, showbiz dreams, and I think she really enjoyed the whole experience. And and I understand it, even after he married my mother, uh, she said that the first time she visited uh, my grandmother's house after the wedding, she brought out the scrapbooks and said, now how are we going to get his life back on track? Oh, my. Do you have any idea of when it began to turn for him, when this thing that had been kind of fun became kind of onerous? I would say, you know, by 48, the, the bloom was off the rose. You know, he was, he was losing interest. Um, I, I feel like he should have left soon after the war because that was the glory years. You and know, the story, the, the, the show changed after the war, right? Yeah, it, it became more a focus on education, in quote marks, uh, and was an educational show. It promoted itself as that, even though it was simply a game show with children. There was very little that was educational about it. And it, it focused more on cuteness, which, um, you know, was to its detriment. You say that your father ultimately overstayed his welcome. What happened? Well, I think uh, the qualities that made him so appealing at the start of his career were not so present at the end of his career. Hello, everyone. This is your old chief quizzer himself, Joe Kelly, presenting America's famous quiz kids. We'll have roll call. Joel? Uh, I'm Joel Kupperman. I'm 14 years old, and I'm a junior at Roosevelt High School. How many years was he on the show? Over 10. Yeah. Over 10. So when he started, he was five? When he finished, he was 15, 16? He was 16, and there are indications that there were efforts to keep him on the show, even after 16, which was the graduation age for quiz kids. There was an item in the newspaper saying that he would continue on the show, but then he didn't. And honestly, I, I have a suspicion that my grandmother had developed friendships with newspaper columnists and was maybe feeding blind items to them. I think some of the the odder things I found in the fake news come from her. Yes, interesting. Absolutely. I get the sense that your father wanted out, really wanted out, a long time before he got out. Yes. Do you know what either the breaking point or what the event was that got him away from the show? Well, no. Um, my father was not good at arguing. He could not win an argument. I know this from my dealings with him, and I think it was always true. So I think, essentially, he was argued into staying on the Quiz Kids year after year after year, after the point when it became simply frustrating and embarrassing and distressing. And I think there has to have been a moment when he just exploded and finally confronted his mother. And I, I, he wiped it from his memory because I think he didn't like unpleasant thoughts or unpleasant memories, and he would simply erase them. But I know it has to have happened because there's no way he could have left that show without an argument. There's no record of his final show. There's no record of um, hardly anything his last year uh, beyond these few items that I mentioned. And it's, um, it's a reflection of how his fame had diminished because at the beginning, every single cute thing he said or did was repeated throughout the nation's press. And at the end, you know, hardly anyone cares. So... 
somehow he leaves the show. Yes. But the show doesn't leave him. Everywhere he goes, he's he's Joel Kupperman, the quiz kid. Oh, right? sure, because he'd now been on TV and everyone knew what he looked like, and a lot of other kids his age hated him. Hated him why? Hated him because he'd been used as an example for them of, of what they should aspire to be. Yeah, why don't you grow up to be like Joel Kupperman or you're not Joel Kupperman? Or... Absolutely, yes. There's even a cartoon, I think it was in the New Yorker, uh, it's a little crude, but it's a woman saying to a small boy, why don't you be like those quiz kids and make me some moolah? So your father goes to the University of Chicago, right? Yes. And he's still dogged by this, this child career. Yes. And then one of his professors says something, and it, it gives him a chance at freedom, right? Yes. One of his professors suggested that he go abroad to study, which apparently had never occurred to him. And um, he, he talked about that event for the rest of his life, that someone had made this good suggestion to him. That this was the transformation, and he did go abroad. Yes, and I think that was a real opening up for him. Uh, he went to England, he went to Cambridge. He, he, I think, took time and traveled around Europe during that period. You know, he was able to be free and be a person and be anonymous. There's a process that goes on here of willful forgetting Oh, yes. Yeah. That, that he just distances himself from that entire quiz kid experience. I think he was preparing to try to build the person he wanted to be, which, was, uh, which involved a rejection of absolutely everything from his earlier life and anything connected with the show. And he became a philosopher, an ethicist. He, he came to the University of Connecticut. He built a house, the house down the road where yes. I picked you up the, uh, this morning, your family lived there, you grew up there, and you said that when you grew up, it felt like your family was in hiding. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I mean, it's, you know, there's uh, a lot I didn't put in, the, put in the book just for clarity of the story, but, you know, when I was uh, seven, we went to live in Cambridge, England, which is a very exciting place for a child. Theaters and bookstores everywhere, you know, medieval buildings. You can walk from the town to the city into the countryside. And uh, I just loved it. It was so intellectually and personally stimulating. And we stayed there for two years. Then we came back here. So after that, the contrast was really pronounced. You really were out in the country in a, in yes. a lot of ways. Yes. And he never mentioned the program. No, no. And, and he walked away completely from his Judaism. From his Judaism and from so many um, things you hear on the show that really defined him as a person. He, he used to be someone who loved baseball. He never mentioned baseball or took me to a baseball game. He used to play the piano to my ears quite well. He never, I never knew that until I wrote this book. Um, there are so many things that he just erased. And he became a very passive and withdrawn person and very nervous about any interactions with people. He was in many ways a person that you didn't really know till you started to work on this book. Is that? That's true, yes, absolutely. It, it, this must be a just a great revelation for you having gone through this. I'm, one of the really wonderful things about this book, and I think it gets its emotional power from this, is that you invite us, and it's pretty courageous, I think. You invite us to experience this discovery of your father through your eyes. I'm not a graphic novel aficionado, so this is, I, I confess, this is my first real deep dive into the genre, and I am just 
blown away by how powerful this combination of simple but very carefully created image and very understated description can just hit you in the gut. You, there's some really powerful stuff in here. Oh, thank you. Yes. Your father was so disaffected from his experience that when there was, there actually was at one point a conference at stores at the University of Connecticut where one of the former quiz kids organized this conference, whatever happened to the quiz kids, right? Yes, and they yes. held it at stores. Yes, it's, and a, he it's didn't a bizarre go. provocation, it really is, that they would do that. Um, he didn't want to be involved. He didn't want to talk about the quiz kids. He'd become a famous, even even a few years after the quiz kids ends, they're, they're referring to him as the garbo of the quiz kids. I found... Uh, Articles like one about Ernie Kovacs' producer who boasts she can get to anyone and get them on the show, except him, um, and so on. And then in the 80s, there's this resurgence of interest. I do remember calls from, I think, the Today Show and places like that. And he just doesn't want to be, to be bothered with it. And then they throw this conference, you know, a few miles from our house at the place where he works. It's, uh, it's really incredible. And he made a point of being out of the country for that. He absented himself. Yes. Yeah. That, I think, is a very, you can't look for a better expression of how disaffected someone can be. Yes. And you say, and it seems really clear from this story, that it's, the re that, that it's a post-traumatic stress reaction. Your father truly was traumatized by this experience. Oh, yes. I think he was incredibly traumatized. I think the power of the book, or part of the power of the book, is that he wasn't the only one who was traumatized. This was apparently, this, uh, not apparently, the, the quiz kid effect was traumatizing for your whole family. Yes, absolutely. I, I think, you know, um, trauma that a parent has experienced can definitely be con conveyed to their children, um, maybe through osmosis or just behavioral hints or, or, you know, the attitude that they're expressing. And I do feel that, in a way, I inherited some of my father's trauma and his... Uh, you know, the effect it had on him. Um, I didn't put so much of it in the book because the book is really not about me, but there are qualities he had which I've inherited which make life incredibly difficult. You, you, there's this one moment, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a two-frame scene where when I, you look like you're eight or nine and you ask your father, do you love me? Yeah. And he looks at you and answers back, sometimes. Yes. And... The way you react to it in the panel, and you know, it's very clear that the the impact that had on you. And do you think that's an expression of this sort of emotionally restricting approach to the world he had after this? Yes, absolutely. I think in some ways he was he was so um, wound by the trauma that he uh, or wounded might be even better. That he um, he could he was like a person frozen or hypnotized. He could not express emotions and could not deal with interpersonal relationships. And and, and there's a, you know there's another place where, well, actually let me save this. I want to ask about this later because not only is there power in this story from the fact that we see it through your eyes, but there's also the fact that your father now is slipping into dementia right. and. You are, um, you talk about that, and you actually begin to explore this because you realize he is, you know, he is slipping into this this loss of memory, which you find kind of as a, 
maybe a relief to him in some ways. It felt very organic to who he was. Yeah, absolutely. There's a, there's a crisis moment in the beginning of the book where you're, I assume, in Brooklyn. You're in a park with your father and your son, uh, and your son runs off, and you don't worry because you're going to catch up with him in a minute. You get there, and he's disappeared. Yeah, disappeared. Tell us what happened. Because this, this seems to be in the book. It's the trigger for the rest of it in a well, lot Well, that of really was the day uh, where I realized how his mind was going. Um, but, yeah, my son disappeared in the middle of Brooklyn for about half an hour, which was the longest half an hour I'll ever experience. And uh, then we found him, and I had asked my father to wait for the police who I had called. And uh, we went back, and then my father was missing. And then I spent the next 90 minutes searching for him, um, you know, only to realize, of course, that he had just gone on the subway and gone home and had no idea that anyone was looking for him. But, but this, you now realize that this dementia is really a thing. It's not the absent-minded professor anymore. There's right. something... There's something so, definitely happening. And you decided it's now or never for finding out about your father, and in some ways, I think, actually making a, a stronger connection with him. Yes. So you begin both to go through your grandmother's scrapbooks, which you find in his library, and you begin to interview him. Well, the scrapbooks I found a few years later. Um, that was, I mean, he was very open to me doing this book for a period and um, was, you know, even in his own way, helpful. But it shows how deeply he had buried any memory that he didn't mention those scrapbooks. Even when he wanted to help me with the book, he didn't remember they were there. And he couldn't really open up about these things, except once in a while the marble would crack, right? A little, yeah, a little nugget would come out. But, um, yeah, he, he, even when he wanted to, he found it very hard to... To focus on that. Do, do you feel at the end that this was a, in any way, healing process between you and him or a, a way of actually drawing closer? Well, I, I do feel like it was a necessary process in a way, absolutely, to really appreciate who he was and why. Yeah. You, you titled the book All the Answers. Right. And it's a wonderful title because as a quiz kid, right. Joel was a kid with all the answers. Right. But what we see in this book is that in some very important ways, he had none of the answers about really important things. Right, and he needed someone to tell him, really. Yeah, and the, the, I, uh, the a place that was perhaps most moving to me in the book is when at the end, and he, you're, talk, you're interviewing him and he has dementia, and you say, why didn't you build a relationship with me? Yeah. Right? And what happens? What's the response? Well, he says, no one told me. No one told me I should, you know. Uh, and that was, that was quite painful to hear, frankly, and, and to record. But, um, yeah, no one had told him he should. That, I, I, you know, I, having been invited to walk through this book through your eyes, I found myself then just wondering, what must that have felt like? What? It was devastating. I mean, honestly, uh, you know, it was, but it was a confirmation of everything I felt. Um, you know, that, that he just, had, it had not occurred to him that he should make some effort to have connections with his children or develop a, a relationship with them outside of, you know, 
you do this, you do that. And that, you know, to me, that was the, the moment when the, the extent of the trauma of this experience was in a lot of ways. It was, it was a gut punch, and I, I really tried to convey that, yeah. yeah well, it, it absolutely comes through. You have, uh, you have a remarkable son of your own. Yes. And you opened the story with this incident where your son disappears. And yes. I, a, as you tell the story of seeing your father through your eyes, I was wondering how much having a son and your own son kind of helped you understand oh, him. Oh, very much factored in, absolutely. Partly because um, my need to understand my father went along with being a parent. Um, in some ways, being a parent is, is, gives you a flashback of your own childhood because as they pass milestones, you remember those milestones in your life and it all acquires context. Um, and then my son, yeah, he's a very special guy, uh, high energy, high curiosity, you know, um, and it's been, an, it's been in some ways a challenge to be his parent, but uh, very rewarding. And I've just tried to do it better than <laughs> was done by me or my father. Well, from what I see, he's a pretty great kid. Yeah, I'm trying to enable him, but, um, you know, prepare him for the world. And as I say in the book, I don't want him to be a successful child. I want him to be a successful adult. You know. Hard to do. I, I think, you know, when you're dealing with a child, you are also in some ways dealing with the future adult. And that's what I try to keep in mind. This is a real, it's an amazing accomplishment. I think you can be very proud of this book, and I think it's a wonderful story of your father's life, a, a, a life that was damaged early. I know your father. I admired him in his second life. You're, you're probably the only interviewer I'll have for this book who knew my father and both my parents. And I know your mother very well. She's my dissertation advisor yes. so, uh, and, and someone I greatly admire. And I admired your father. But I knew a little bit about the quiz kids, but I never knew the dimensions of this Yes. till I read your book. And I find that totally amazing. There, to some extent, there's, there's a bit of difficulty for me separating the fact that I know the characters in this book fairly well from the power of the book itself, but I think anyone who reads this book is going to be profoundly moved by it. Oh, well, thank you. I hope so, yes. So let's talk about how you created it. One of the things that I've, I've read it through several times now, and I'm impressed with the craft of the book. This was a very difficult and complex story to tell, and you structured it and presented it almost so that it seems, as, as really good works do, it seems just completely effortless. It's one of those things you don't want to put down. Oh, thank you. It took me about six years, and the first four were doing the research and then writing the story and rewriting it and rewriting it and just paring it down, paring it down, taking out any unnecessary details or words. I wanted this book to be um, easy to read despite the subject matter, and I wanted it to be absolutely readable by anyone, even someone who had never picked up a graphic novel before. So it is a... Uh, uh, it is like a comic book in the ease with which you read it, but in the content, it's, you know, it's a rich, deep, multi-layered, textured story. 
Well, thank you. Yes, I, 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 in some ways, used the language of comic books. It's present in the structuring of the chapters and so on, uh, the beginning, middle, end of each one, um, and and kind of used the flow that comic books have when they're successful. Um, that was one of the qualities, you know, I definitely wanted it to have. But I also, in some ways, in the back of my head, I was thinking children's book for adults. It's not. Um, you know, it's not a simple story, and there's there's some you know maybe challenging ideas in it. But uh, again, I wanted it to be something that just you just fell through, that you just moved through, that it shouldn't be an effort to read. You know, before I became a an academic, I was a songwriter, and people used to ask me which comes first, the words or the tunes, and I always found that a, a you know, somewhat problematic and tedious question, but now I'm faced with asking you what has to be the illustrator's equivalent or the comic book author's equivalent. What's the relationship between the words and the images? Oh, well, the images came last, and um, I always was visualizing the images, but really it was getting the words and the layout uh, right first. So, in fact, I did quite a few drafts that are just layouts missing the images. So the outline, the, the panel borders are there, the writing is there, but the images are not present. So and why is the layout so important, preceding the images? What? Because that's part of the flow, and I wanted to, the, this book to have flow more than anything, that, you know, it would carry you. This is very interesting to me. So the actual structure of the frames on the page becomes, and I see it, as you say it, it becomes critical to the narrative, yes. even in some ways. What's surprising to me is that it is independent of the images themselves, that you create the flow, then the images. The images follow flow. Yes, absolutely, and the images were the last stage to tackle. Really. So form follows function. Exactly. <laughs> I guess yeah. that's a, Is there... It, is there anything you would do differently if you were starting this book over again? Oh, I mean, there's always lots of stuff. There's always things you wish you had included or worded differently. I don't think, I, th I think this is true it just in general of novelists and writers. It's, it's, it's hard to define a point where you feel that it's done, and in a sense it never is. And since this is, a, as you say, a very highly emotional work about my family, it's, it's almost as if I've started a process and it's still going. So the book in itself is almost like a virus or something I've released into the world, or I don't know, uh, you know, something that is going to produce results. Now that's interesting. It, it, imagine that with me. How do you see this virus getting out and spreading, and what kind of results would you anticipate, or could you see happening? Well, certainly within my family already, there have been you know results, and I've had responses, and I think it actually, I mean. I will say this, my mother has s told me several times that my research has changed her idea of who my father was. Wow. Which is something. Um, and I, you know, I've been getting reactions from the other side of the family that I didn't have a lot of contact with for decades. And um, there are larger aspects to the book, too, that I'm very curious to see how people react to. The, uh, the anti-Semitism, the Ford business, and the wartime propaganda business. It, it you cannot read this book and not want to see it as a movie or a TV series or something. It's it's all it, it strikes me as having everything, but the you know, it also strikes me from the 
from the you know, family perspective as being something that's you know, not unfraught with, with possibilities because it's so honest. Yes. Well, this, this was me also, you know, our, our family narrative had been, you know, this cloudy one of this, this happened in the past and it doesn't matter and let's not talk about that and we'll keep this quiet. You know, and this was me seizing control of the family narrative, uh, writing my version of it, and, you know, the person who writes the book gets to, you know, have control of the narrative. So I, this was me saying, no, this is what I think happened. You know? so, so what have you learned from this that you are going to apply in your own life? Well, I mean, certainly I've, I've uh, formed some opinions about child rearing and uh, how you should not uh, push your child to excel in certain things when they're a child because it's uh, pointless and you're withdrawing on their future. Um, there's also, you know, it's made me even more cynical about, you know, news and information and how it's disseminated because, of course, looking through newspapers, I realized a lot of stuff had been made up or falsified or changed. It was evident when you compared sources. So fake news is not a new uh, entity. It's no, been around think, a long time. I think it's always been uh, present, yeah. Well, Michael Kupperman, thank you so much for a wonderful book. It's All the Answers, published by Simon & Schuster. It'll be in a bookstore near you imminently. If May it's 15th, not the, yeah. May 15th, yeah. it's coming out. And uh, this is one you do not want to miss. Thanks so much. Thank you. Well, we better get back to the radio business. All of us know the old county out rhyme, eeny, meeny, miny, mole, but James N. Rasmussen of Tacoma, Washington, thinks other rhymes are now used on schoolyards to count players out of games. Do you know any others that are used to see who gets first turn? Joel? Uh, and there's one uh, that, that's called one, two, three, four, Mary at the College Store. Five, six, seven, eight, eating cookies off the plate. <laughs> and, there's, and there's another one that's one, two, three, four, five. I caught a fish alive. Six, seven, eight, nine, ten. I let him go again. And there's still another uh, <laughs> that eeny, meeny, miny, no. Well, well, look, uh, uh, Joel, uh, we've, uh, uh, wait just a minute. You can't use that. Trouble starts when nations grow. <laughs> Someone has to stop it, so eeny, meeny, miny, moe. Well, that makes you it. Oh, me it? <laughs> Very good, Joel. Yes, sir. Joel, your 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 finger is working all right tonight. <laughs> I'm getting to talk like Joel here. Well. Sounds cute anyway, doesn't it? <laughs> Two out of three on this. Thanks for listening. We wish to thank Michael Kupperman and Mansfield Public Library. Be sure to go to our Facebook page, Connecticut Explored, or our Instagram at CT underscore Explored 
to enter to win a copy of Michael Kupperman's graphic memoir, All the Answers, published by Simon & Schuster. And for more great Connecticut history podcasts, subscribe to Grading the Nutmeg on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, or at gradingthenutmeg.libsign.com. And for more great Connecticut history stories, read or subscribe to the magazine at ConnecticutExplored.org. This episode was sponsored by attorney Peter Bowman, helping the seriously injured and holding distracted drivers accountable for their actions. More at Bowman.legal. And CT Humanities, co-publisher of Connecticut Explored. This is Walt Woodward, hoping you'll join us next time for another episode of Grading the Nutmeg. Thank you.